This is always one of the most challenging Sundays for me when I get back from Shepherd's Conference because I'm always wondering what I should preach and teach and, and uh, I want to do my best to capsulize in my own uh, heart and mind the things that I was challenged by and impressed by and, and uh, motivated by and inspired by and, and um, you know, going back to where your roots are is good. And I think we all need that to remember because we all have a tendency to forget, to forget where we've come from, to forget sometimes what we say we believe, uh, to forget what we're supposed to be committed to. Um, And so for me, going back to the Shepherds Conference is a a time to remember. It's a time to be uh, refocused, a time to be recommitted, rededicated, and uh, it's a special place because it's the place where some men poured their life into me for 10 years and, uh, and passed on to me the things that someone had passed on to them and they infused my heart with a passion for God and a passion for His Word. And uh, you can't help but be inspired to kind of go back to your roots. And uh, I think there's uh, something to say for um, trying to think of the thing... Um, what are those things uh, in your life? Not, I can't even think of what it is. Monuments. Thank you for your help. Monuments. And I don't mean setting up places a monument that you worship and you bow down to, but I mean monuments along the way. And you see that in the nation of Israel, right? They, as they went along their paths, they set up monuments that they would, their, their children would see and their grandchildren would see, and it would give them an opportunity to explain to them, hey, Dad, what's that pile of rocks all about? And they would be able to reflect and remember and, and, and all that uh, that experience was to them. It's able, it just comes out with new and fresh meaning and purpose for that next generation. And so I guess for me, going back there is a monumental time, if you can call it that. And uh, it reminded me of a couple of verses that we've been studying in 1 Timothy. And you don't have to turn there, just listen. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 14, Paul said to Timothy, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. And when we studied that, we learned that for whatever reason, Timothy had been neglecting to fulfill his responsibility, um, the very thing that he had been called to do, that he had been ordained to do, that's the laying on of hands. Uh, in fact, Second Timothy, uh, chapter two, excuse me, Second Second Timothy, chapter one. He uh, Paul says this in verse six, and for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And uh, it's just very um, monumental for me to be in the place where I got down on my knees and. 40 elders laid their hands on me and commissioned me and ordained me for the ministry of the word. And then to be interacting with those men who are still there and still in leadership positions uh, is a great 
challenge and is great inspiration uh, to, and, and it really does what Paul was saying. It kindles afresh the passion uh, that they imparted to me. And so when I left uh, to come to Texas, about six years, it'll be six years in July, if I'm doing the math right. No, maybe it'll be seven years. I've lost track. Rod, what is it? Six or seven? Seven. Well, I'm glad somebody's keeping track because I, I lose track. There was, a, there was a passion in my heart to do something and to be something, to be a certain kind of pastor, to be a certain kind of preacher. And as I came, I asked the Lord to give me a, a passage or a verse that I could use to really communicate my passion. And the verse that the Lord gave me was Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me this morning. And I don't know, you may have a life verse. You know, that's, we all, you know, talk about having a life verse. You know, if you could pick one verse out of the Bible that's your favorite verse. Um, what is it? Well, I have a hard time with it. It seems like whatever verse I read last that most impacted my life, that's my life verse. <laughs> Until something else comes the next week, and that's my new life verse. But if there was a verse that, that has stood the test of time in my own heart, at least for the last seven years, that I find myself going back to over and over and over again, to be reminded, to be refocused, to be rekindled, if you will, afresh of what I'm to be and do, it's Colossians 1.25. Paul says, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Father, thank you for this verse and what is contained in it that has inspired me and compelled me in the past and continues to drive me and to motivate me to do and to be who I feel like you've called me to be and called me to do. And I pray, Father, as we consider this verse again as a church, that it would give us a greater appreciation for what you want to do in my life, what you want to do in the life of this church. And that as we come together and our faithful to what this passage says as a body that you will bless us and you will use us to win many others to Christ and that you'll use us to help one another grow to become more like Christ so that you ultimately would be glorified in our lives and in this community and so father help us to understand what this passage means and how it applies to our lives so that we will be who you want us to be this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've read lots of books about being a pastor. And I think one of my favorites uh, is called The Minister as Shepherd. It's just a short little book. You can get it for like two bucks. And it's written by a guy named Charles Jefferson. And in it, he writes this. Quote, it is by no means easy for a young man to become a shepherd. He ought not be discouraged if he cannot become one in a day or a year. 
An orator, he can become without difficulty. A reformer, he can become at once. In criticism of politics and society, he can do a flourishing business the first Sunday. But a shepherd, he can become only slowly and by patiently traveling the way of the cross. The Apostle Paul traveled the way of the cross to become the kind of shepherd that we know him to be. Look at what he says in verse 24, which is the really a segue into our verse 25. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul was in prison at the time, experiencing persecution for the sake of Christ and for his ministry, his bold proclamation of the gospel. And he explains here why he was suffering. Because even though they had killed Jesus, the enemies of Christ had not had their fill of persecuting Christ. And so they were looking for someone else, other people to take out their vengeance and their anger and their frustration and rebellion against Christ. And so they turned their hatred against those who preach Christ. And so Paul was the primary target for Christ's persecutors in that day. And nevertheless, Paul was rejoicing in that fact because he could share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings as he talked about in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And he knew that by enduring suffering, he was in some way building up the body of Christ, the church. And so for Paul, it was like, hey, if it's going to build up the, if it's going to build up the church, bring it on. If I can have some part in building up the body of Christ, even if it's painful, even if it hurts, bring it on. And I think that's, that's why he was such a great pastor. And he goes on to say in verse 25 of this church, this church that I do my share on behalf of it to, to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he said, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And I think in that one verse, Paul gives one of the simplest and clearest explanations of pastoral ministry in the entire Bible. He describes four dynamics involved in pastoral ministry. He talks about the sovereignty of a pastor. Don't be concerned about that. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. <laughs> Sounds authoritarian there, but I'll explain that. Number two, the responsibility of a pastor he talks about the humility of a pastor. And then finally, he talks about the priority of a pastor. You say, Ken, why are you preaching us about what it means to be a pastor? We're not pastors. You're the pastor. Why don't you just study this and know it and then teach us something we need to know? Well, you know what? You need to know this. Because you need to know what you should expect of me. And anyone else who stands up here and delivers the word, who ministers to you in a leadership position in this church, you need to know what you should expect. And it's not your expectations that matter. It's God's expectations that matter. Amen? And so this is really what God expects of me. This is what, this is what I expect of me. I'll tell you, this is what I expect of me. This is what you should expect of me. But ultimately, this is what God expects of me. And any man who stands in that position of pastor, elder of a church. And so let's look at these four dynamics 
of a past of pastoral ministry this morning. Number one, the sovereignty of a pastor. Look at what Paul says. He says, of this church, I was what? Can't hear you. I was made a minister. I was made a minister. And Paul often expressed this conviction that he had been sovereignly chosen by God to be a minister. You see it in verse 23. Look a few verses back. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was what? Made a minister. Look back at the first verse of Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, because I couldn't figure out anything else to do in my life. Or because I thought it was a really cool thing to do. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for one reason, by whose will? By the will of God. It was God's will that Paul was who Paul was. And was where Paul was. And he was doing what he was doing. We see this throughout the scriptures. Acts 20, 28. Paul said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Talking to the elders uh, in, in Ephesus before he was or excuse me, on his way to Rome. He says, be on guard for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. In other words, it's not our job to make guys elders. Our job is simply to recognize those that God has made or is in the process of making. He said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, I was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He says, even though I'm the least of the saints, I'm the, I'm the, the last guy God should have chosen, and yet He did. And He, made, he put me in the ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 12 Excuse me, 1 Timothy 1, chapter 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy being the foremost of sinners. In other words, Paul said, not only am I least, I'm the least of the saints, the lowest Christian on the totem pole, man, I was the worst sinner there was. And he said, yet by God's grace and his mercy... He put me into a service. He made me a minister. And so Paul realized that being a pastor wasn't his choice. It was God's choice. A pastor doesn't choose his profession like a banker would or a lawyer or a farmer or a rancher or whatever. His vocation is chosen for him by God. It's a position that cannot be purchased. It cannot be Inherited, It cannot be attained by theological degrees or education. It's not achieved by natural giftedness. It's a gift that is sovereignly granted to a man by God. Alwald Sanders in, in his classic book on spiritual leadership says this, quote, he says, it's the element of sovereignty that begets awe and great humility in those whom, to whom leadership is entrusted. In other words, it's that, it's that fact that, you know what, this was not about me. I didn't choose this for me. God did it. It was all His sovereign plan for my life. It, it, it creates a sense of awe and humility in the heart of a pastor. 
I can truly say that I am awed and humbled that God has sovereignly called me to be a pastor. He, he graciously placed me in a Christian home where I was brought up to in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, which resulted in a genuine commitment of my entire life to the person and work of Jesus Christ at a young age. And it was in high school that I really had a burden and a heart to, to share with my friends the, the glory of the gospel. And, and, and I experienced the first signs of God's calling in my life to ministry. And God placed this huge burden and weight upon my heart with the hopelessness of, of my friends, my peers in high school. And, and, and gave me what Spurgeon described as a, quote, irresistible, overwhelming craving and raging thirst for telling others what God had done in my soul. That's what Spurgeon said, how you know you're called to the ministry. You've got to have that, that, that craving, that overwhelming craving, this irresistible, raging thirst in your heart. In other words, if you can do anything else in life and be happy, then do it, because there's going to be some days you wish you did. There's going to be some days you wish you had done something else, because the ministry can get rough. Well, that desire grew in intensity in my own heart until it became a burning fire, as Jeremiah says, shut up in my bones. And it became so all-absorbing to me, all-consuming, that I didn't have a desire to do anything else. I knew I wouldn't be content in life doing anything else but the work of the ministry. People would ask me in high school, well, what do you want to do in, you know, with your life? What do you want to do when you grow up? And, and I had never had a youth pastor, um, so I didn't know there was such a thing as a youth pastor. All I knew is I had a heart for young people and to help them understand the Bible. So I used to say, I want to be a Bible teacher. I want to teach young people the Bible. That's all I could come up with. That's all I could grasp. And then I went off to Bible college and realized there was such a thing as a youth pastor. I said, well, that's, a, that's, what, that's what I want to be. I want to be a youth pastor. I want to shepherd young people. And so off to Bible college I went and seminary and, and God confirmed my desire for ministry by just providentially directing my steps toward the ministry, providing me with excellent uh, training and education and, and doctrinally sound instruction as well as abundant ministry opportunities uh, to hone my gifts and my abilities and, and uh, equip me to effectively serve him and surrounded me with really godly men and, and gifted guys and, and who just poured their life into me. And, and after going through a, a formal ordination process, a group of godly elders laid their hands on me recognizing and affirming that God had called me and equipped me for, for full-time pastor, pastoral ministry. And then in the sweet, sweet providence of God, he led me here to Texas after saying, I don't want to go to Texas. And uh, one of my friends said, hey, you need to go check this area out. There's an exciting area and you need to go. And, and I said, I don't want to go to Texas. And uh, I said, but you know what? At this point, nobody's responding to my resumes, so beggars can't be choosers. I said, if I end up in Texas, I'm blaming you. <laughs> Quote. That's what I told him. In fact, I saw him at Shepherd's Conference. And I said, there's the guy you can blame. I told the other guy, there's the guy you can blame for me being in Texas. And God used that guy in my life to direct my path here. And uh, it's been an exciting ride, hasn't it? Planning a church here in Texas and who, who would have ever known? I, I, if I had known, I would have taken the class on church planning in seminary. <laughs> but I never anticipated this, never expected it. Um, but God has been very gracious, and God has been very good. And in fact, somebody asked me this morning, um, do you miss it there? Do you ever wish you could go back? 
And I was like, no, that's not where God wants me. That was, that was where he wanted me then. And that's where a very special place in my life because he used it dramatically in my life to hone and shape me to, to be who I am today. But this is where I'm at. This is my home. This is where God has called us. And so it's great to be able to fly back into Houston and land and say, feels good to be home. Feels good to be home. We were talking about that in the car on the way back uh, from the airport. That it's always good to be home. God's sovereignty in choosing me and directing me not only gives me a sense of great humility, but it gives me a sense of great confidence, which I know to some comes across as arrogance. I've been told, or it gets around. Well, he's arrogant. Ken, Ken Raymond, he's arrogant. Well, I hope that's not true. Um, but I think sometimes confidence, um, not in myself, but I hope you see confidence. My confidence is where? In the truth of God's word. And so when I get up and I preach God's word, I can do it confidently. Because I'm not getting up and sharing you my opinion or what I think. I'm saying this is what God says, so I better be confident. But it makes me confident. And I hope it's a humble confidence. Erwin Lutzer, who is the pastor of historic Moody Church in Chicago, he said this, quote, I don't see how anyone who could survive, I don't see how anyone could survive in the ministry if he felt it was just his own choice. He says, some ministers scarcely have two good days back to back. He says, they're sustained by the knowledge that God has placed them where they are. Ministers without such a conviction often lack courage and carry their resignation letter in their coat pocket. At the slightest hint of difficulty, they're gone. Charles Bridges, who was a Puritan, wrote a great book, a classic called The Christian Ministry. He said this, quote, the confidence that a pastor is acting in obedience to the call of God that he is in his work, in his way, nerves him in the midst of all difficulty and under a sense of his responsible obligations with almighty strength. And I can relate to that. And so as your pastor, I'm not just doing a job. I'm fulfilling a calling. I'm a man under obligation, not to you, but to God. That's the sovereignty of a pastor. Let's look at the responsibility of a pastor. He says, of this church, I was made a minister. Now watch this. According to the what? Stewardship from God. Paul considered himself a steward. You, you see that all throughout his letters. 1 Corinthians 4.1. He says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 9. Verses 16 and 17, he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but against my will, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, he says, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And so this word stewardship is a, is a very important word in Paul's ministry, theology, and philosophy. It was the word that, was, that, that described the authority and the responsibility that was given to a household slave. A steward was the slave who had been entrusted with the master's household. And when the master would leave or go out of town or, or was busy with his other responsibilities, the master would delegate to, to a steward the responsibility to manage the affairs of his household. 
And so that steward was under obligation to fulfill this responsibility, and he would be rewarded or punished accordingly. But we know that from our study in 1 Timothy, specifically chapter 4, verse 16, that the church is God's household. Excuse me, that's chapter 3, verse 16. The church is God's household. And God has entrusted to pastors and to elders the responsibility to oversee and to manage God's household. To shepherd it, to take care of it. And with that responsibility comes great accountability. Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give them what? An account. Turn back to 1 Corinthians for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, looking at Paul's philosophy of ministry here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He's reminding the Corinthian Christians of the great stewardship that had been entrusted to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. In other words, God has called us to work alongside him. He says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each one be careful how he builds upon it. No, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. You know what that's talking about? That's talking about Judgment Day, not just for me, but for all of us. As God's fellow workers, as we continue to build on the foundation that he established in Jesus Christ, in his death and his resurrection, We have been rooted and grounded on that foundation, on the apostles and their teaching. Now we're building and we're adding to the structure as the body of Christ. And everything we do is either gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. Every sermon I preach, every decision we make, every, every program we establish, every Bible study we start, every, every book we read, every, every uh, outreach we do, you name it, anything we do here, to, here in our church falls into one of these two categories. It's either gold, silver, and precious stones, or it's either wood, hair, straw. Your service, my service on a weekly basis whether it's in nursery or student ministries or in the resource center or outside pulling weeds or whatever it is that you do, it either falls into the category of gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw. And someday we're all going to give an account and God's going to test the quality of our work. And the only thing I can come up with so far is that it all comes down to one thing, and that's motive. Motive. Why did you do the things that you did? Obviously, if, if something's heretical, if something's uh, compromising, we know that will be, that's not good quality. But there's a lot of good stuff that's done for wrong motive, with wrong motives. And I think that's even wood, hay, and straw. But to know that we're going to stand and give account someday and the reality that I will stand before God and be held accountable for how faithfully I fulfilled my responsibility 
as your pastor motivates me to be a good steward. Not so I get glory, but so God gets glory. And we see that in 1 Peter. Peter had the right perspective. If, of any of the disciples who had been humbled and would understand this perspective, it's Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He says, As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, God has given each one of us a gift or gifts that he wants us to use in serving one another to the building up of the body of Christ. And he says, and that's good stewardship. We need to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God, the gift that God has given us. He says, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were, the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do as by the strength which God supplies. And again, whatever it is that God has gifted you to do, whether it's speaking or serving or, or ministering or counseling or, or, or whatever, you do it with the strength that God supplies so that in all things God may be what? Glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, a good steward is motivated to be faithful, not for the reward as much as for the honor and glory of his master. That's what motivates a steward. A steward is not in it for himself. A steward wants his master to be honored and glorified. And so he takes his responsibility very seriously. Well, that's the sovereignty of a pastor and the responsibility of a pastor. Let's look thirdly at the humility, the humility of a pastor. The humility of a pastor. Look back at Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. He says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship of God bestowed on me for my benefit. Whose benefit? Your benefit. Paul realized that God had made him a minister to benefit him. Wasn't so Paul could stand up and go, aren't I a great minister? But it was for the people to whom he ministered. Again, we see this throughout his writing. Ephesians 3, 1 and 2, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which is given to me for you. And of course, we all know Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, I didn't go to seminary and get ordained for my benefit. So that you could be impressed by my little plaques in my office that show my degrees and my ordination council and wasn't so I could be respected as the right Reverend Ramey, you know, and, and everyone, you know, says, ooh, there's Reverend Ramey and all this kind of stuff. And please don't call me that, by the way. That would really irritate me if you did. <laughs> but all that, all that training, all that time and all that energy expended to understand the word of God as, as, as best that I can possibly understand and, and to know how to communicate it as clearly and as, as accurately and as passionately as possible. All that training, all that sacrifice, all that stuff was not for me. It was for you. And I didn't even know it when I was doing it, who it was going to be for. But I knew it wasn't for me. It was ultimately for the body of Christ. Amen? Somewhere, someplace, some context. 
God didn't bring me here to fulfill a need in my life necessarily, although it's nice to have a job. But he sent me here to fill up what is lacking in your faith so that you'll be matured and complete, not lacking anything, as the scripture says. And so all that to say, I'm here to serve you. And that's what that word minister means. He says, of this church, I was made a minister. It's the word diakonos, which is the word for what? Servant, or literally what? Slave. A slave. And Paul always referred to himself as a servant. You can see it in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, that we are your bondservants. In other words, we're your slaves. And I think this is important to know because this is not usually the image that comes to your mind when you think of a pastor today. Pastors oftentimes see themselves as CEOs, right? Or visionaries or celebrities. The problem with that is that the Bible never compares the position of a pastor to a high-powered CEO, but to a humble, lowly what? Shepherd. With sheep all around, right? And so the main job of a shepherd is to serve his flock. I love Warren Wiersbe. He's one of my heroes. He wrote a book called 10 Powerful Principles for Christian Service. And this is what he says in this regard. Quote, he says, to put it plainly, shepherds serve their sheep. That's a tongue twister. Say that 10 times. Shepherds serve their sheep. Shepherds know their sheep and can call them by name. They lead their sheep to places where they can find food, water, and shelter. They protect the sheep from enemies. They apply healing oil when the sheep have been cut or bruised. They enable the sheep to be useful in growing wool, providing milk and reproducing after their kind. When any of the sheep go astray, the shepherd goes after them and seeks to bring them back. And then he goes on to apply this to pastoral ministry. He says it doesn't take much imagination to apply this to the local church and the ministry of the pastor and elders. It says they lead the sheep into the word of God for spiritual nourishment and refreshment. They keep alert lest Satan's wolves invade the flock. They equip the sheep for being useful in the kingdom of God. When the sheep stray, the shepherds lovingly go after them. And when the sheep hurt, the shepherds apply the medicine of God's word to promote healing. He says, shepherding is a personal ministry. It's a sacrificial ministry and a demanding ministry. Maintaining the heart of a servant is the basis for all that the pastor does. In fact, it was Jesus who we know to be the great shepherd who told his under shepherds, the disciples, not to lead like the rulers of the world. All they were thinking about is who's going to sit on his right and left hand, right? We're, we're into this ruling thing. And what did he say? The world lords it over people and they exercise their authority over them. But you instead need to be a servant and a slave of all. You want to be a follower of Christ? Then you need to learn to be a slave of everyone else. Servant leadership. Expressed in Mark chapter 10 verse 45. Jesus said, for the son of man did not come to what? Be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so I'm here to, not to be served, but to serve. To spend my life serving you as a humble shepherd. The last dynamic here that Paul talks about is what we'll call the priority of a pastor. The priority of a pastor 
Again, Colossians 1.25, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the administrative duties of this church. That I might fully carry out all the counseling that has to be done in this church. That I might fully carry out all the programming and all the details and all the planning of this church. What does it say? That I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That, that, that phrase, fully carry out, is the word, is describing something, doing something fully or carrying it to completion. And so Paul is expressing his single-minded devotion to completely fulfill the ministry that God had called him to do, which consisted primarily in teaching and preaching the word of God to the people to whom he'd been sent to minister. He says it best, I think, in Acts chapter 20. Verse 20, he said, I did not shrink I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so Paul's priority passion was to preach everything in God's word without leaving out or compromising any part of it. And he passed his passion on to his disciple Timothy. You're familiar with 2 Timothy chapter 3. We just studied that a few weeks ago. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Forget about the chapter divisions. They weren't there in the original. This was a letter, and this is kind of the, the, the transitional paragraph here. He's, he's moving into a different paragraph, but notice the connection. Chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. I mean, he's laying it on thick there. He's saying, Timothy, I charge you solemnly in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's going to judge you someday when he comes back. I mean, he's just laying it on thick, saying, Timothy, don't miss this one, pal. This one's the biggie. Don't get this one wrong. What is it that he was charging him to do so solemnly? To preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Paul spoke to Timothy in future tense. For the time will come. Beloved, we are there. We are living in that day where people are flocking to churches and they're flocking to what I'll call speakers who are telling them exactly what they want to hear. And that's why it's so popular because they're getting what they want to hear. It's stroking their ego. It's... it's, it's uh, 
It's, it's, it's nothing negative. It's all positive. It's the, positive, uh, it's the, it's the uh, power of positive thinking kind of messages. And preaching in general uh, is, is just being minimized and, and marginalized and even replaced in the church today. It's, it's no longer, you know, preaching in period, let alone expository preaching, right? Verse by verse through books of the Bible. I mean, the big, the big trend in the church today is, is topical preaching that targets people's felt needs. In other words, let's survey the people and find out what they're struggling with. And then we'll go in the Bible and find verses that talk about those needs and we'll address those needs like marriage and family and, and, and finances and sex and, and, and whatever it is that they're struggling with. Instead of saying, you know what happens when you do that? You know, know, you know what you turn the Bible into? You know what those, those, those speakers and pastors turn the Bible into? And I don't think they're doing it purposely. They're turning the Bible into nothing more than a self-help manual. Instead of the authoritative, sufficient word of God. And people, all they have is bits and pieces of, of Scripture. And if you ask someone, hey, have you ever heard this verse? Oh, yeah, I've heard that verse. And they say, where's that verse? I don't know. Why? Because they've, they've, they've been fed a diet of these topical messages. It's, it's uh, verses from here and verses from here all strung together and pieced together like a patchwork quilt. Ripped out of their context. And so nobody ever understands the Bible, the Scriptures, the way God inspired them. In books and letters and lines and phrases and paragraphs and chapters. And I think one of the primary reasons why the church is so anemic today and is so weak today is because of a lack of an understanding of God's word. People have a very superficial understanding of God's word. One of my favorite books is written by a guy named David Eby. It's called Power Preaching for Church Growth. And basically his whole premise is that if you go to, if you read all these books on church growth, you'll never find a chapter on preaching in it. And so he wrote a book all about preaching and church growth. He says, if you want to grow your church the way God says to grow your church, it needs to be rooted and grounded in preaching. And, and he's just writing about how the church has lost her confidence in preaching and how they've moved away from doctrinal biblical exposition and sermons are being shortened and replaced with other things altogether uh, that will be more entertaining for people. And, and then this is, he exhorts pastors. He says, this is how you should respond. Don't, don't get trapped into the, don't, don't jump on the bandwagon. Don't get caught up in the fads, the fads that are going on in the church that are here today, gone tomorrow. He said, quote, you resist and you fight, you stand against the trend, you swim against the tide, you go to battle for biblical content and biblical truth, you refuse to be reluctant to preach doctrine, you decline to be an ear tickler, you revolt against the tendency to downplay doctrine, you rebel against anemic, watered-down exposition, you know people can't survive spiritually on gruel, so you labor hard to prepare well-balanced, high-calorie, high-protein meals that will feed the soul. He says, your ultimate concern is not what people say or think. You don't care what the climate of the market is or what people say they want to hear. You have a higher calling than felt needs sermonizing that aims at satisfying the customer. Your call is to please the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of lords. Your summons is to faithful stewardship. Your vocation is to declare and teach the powerful content of the whole counsel of God. I like that guy. He, he, he hit the nail on the head. And he's just, he's just repeating 
what the great godly men of the past always believed. That the highest priority and the greatest responsibility of pastor is to preach the word of God. Listen to some of the great preachers of the past. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a great British preacher. He said, quote, the supreme work of the Christian minister is the work of preaching. John Owen, the great Puritan. He said, the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. Jaya Packer, we shall never perform a more important task than preaching. If we are not willing to give time to sermon preparation, we're not fit to preach and we have no business in the ministry of all, at all. Wow. I wish he said what he really thought. And that's why I strive to make studying and preparing to preach the priority of my weekly schedule. It's not always easy because there is a lot of challenges and responsibilities that come along with the, the role of a pastor. But I always try to give the best hours of my day to prayer and to the study of God's word. And I take very seriously Paul's command where he said to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent, study hard to present yourself approved to God. As a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. And I think the key to powerful and effective preaching is very simple. You know, John MacArthur has said this for years. And I think it's hilarious. He, somebody asked him one time. He said, he goes, hey, what's, what's the key, you know, for, for, to, to be such an effective preacher like you? And he was thinking he was going to say something real spiritual. And John kind of shrugged and just said, you know what? It's keeping your butt in the chair until you're done studying. In other words, you stay in your study until you know that God will be pleased with what you've prepared to preach because it accurately represents His Word. I came across uh, an unforgettable plan, if you will, suggested by an unknown church member for his pastor. This was his suggestion. And his clarion call for, this was some layman in the church that said, this is what we need to do for our pastor. He says this, quote, Fling him into his office, tear the office sign from the door, and nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing list. Lock him up with his books and his computer and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before texts and broken hearts and the flock of lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our community who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all night through and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever, spouting remarks and stop his tongue forever, tripping lightly over every non-essential, require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence, bend his knees in the lonesome valley, burn his eyes with weary study, wreck his emotional poise with worry for God, and make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man, make him spend and be spent for the glory of God, rip out his telephone, burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets, put water in his gas tank, give him a Bible and tie him down to the pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. He's just getting started. (laughs) Test him, quiz him, 
Examine him. Humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, batting averages, and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it night and day, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. When at long last he dares assay the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. And if he does not, then dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's weary drives and bless the sordid baked potatoes and green beans better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up worn and forlorn and say, Thus says the Lord. Break him across the board of his ill-gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him with demands for celestial wisdom. And give him no escape until he's back against the wall of the word. And sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left. God's word. Let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip, but give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, and come at last to speak it backward and forward until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. And he closes with this paragraph. He says, and when he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery graze blazing through him, excuse me, the fiery grace blazing through him. And when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man, finally transferred from earth to heaven, then bear him away gently and blow a muted trumpet and lay him down softly, place a two-edged sword in his coffin and raise the tomb triumphant. For he was a brave soldier of the word and ere he died, he'd become a man of God. Father God, I pray that that somehow, some way, someday could be said of me. And that we as a church would be able to experience the incredible blessing that comes from the faithful exposition an application of your word week in and week out, year after year after year, transforming our lives, conforming us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, none of this is possible if it were up to me or any of us Only you can make this possible. Only you can make this happen. And so we cry out to you this afternoon and ask that you would cause this to be our experience here at Lakeside Bible Church. Not for our glory, not for our reputation or our namesake, but for yours. We pray this in Jesus' name.